Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the Definitive Developers Podcast in Fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez, our co-host today, Dave Anderson, and our producer, William Jeffries. And today, we'll be talking about classical versus mockist testing. The mo- most mockist testing. The, the most mockist ever. Well, I imagine there's uh, the classical way of testing and then mocking all the things. I think we'll get right into the crux of it. Before we start, we got a special guest reoccurring, going down, Jacob O'Donnell. What's up? Oh, God. It's been a long time since I've seen you guys. <laughs> yes. It's been a while. It's been, been too been long, man. You got to come by more often. Oh, I should do like a triple whammy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that is. Yeah. 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 Glad to have you here. You're known as the uh, the Beethoven of classical testing, right? Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. Uh, I, I hear that quite often. and um, you know, I always thought of you as more of a Mozart. Kind of a sort of a smorgasbord of classical <laughs> composers. So I think I'm sort of out of ones I know, but uh, <laughs> I'm kind of all of them mushed into one. Um, I mean, I guess let's in a wave introduction. I'm uh, in my mid 30s, and I don't think there's much else to say. And a programmer. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I live in Brooklyn. Yes, that's <laughs> I live in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Best borough. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know about all that. Ooh. Get that out of here. <laughs> BX all day. Stand up if you're sitting. So what is Classical testing, not just like the Mozart and the Beethoven. Let's define the two, and then we'll go over the verses and why one may be better than the other, and mm-hmm. vice versa. Okay, so this is this is based off like a uh, Martin Fowler blog post. It's fantastic. If you Google um, TDD classical versus mockus Martin Fowler, you'll find it. It's yeah, a great article. Twenty seventh January. 2007. Old. That was old. the day. Yeah. Oh, man. Old. Oh, man. That guy's old. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. The 2nd of January. It's even older. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. It was like New Year. And he's like, I need to get this down. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. He was not celebrating. He was busily hammering out a giant blog post. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the gist of, of what it's talking about is in the Marcus style TDD, you are actually... Like you have your subject under test, which for the sake of it, let's talk about an object. And every collaborator is a mock. So you wouldn't ever pass in anything like if your object itself like constructed its own object, that would be a problem. You would want to instead use dependency injection. So every single collaborator is passed in. Everything is mocked out. And all of your tests are asserting that like some action happened that this was called on this other object. Hmm. So your unit test is really a unit test. It is only testing the subject under test versus classical TDD, where you don't worry so much about mocking. I mean, mocks still have their place in classical TDD. You, if you, you know, if you have a very long, usually it's time based. If you have like a network call that could either be flaky or take a long time, then you mock it out. But you, you, you certainly let your you, you don't worry so much about mocking every dependency. Yeah. So like I guess what you're saying is like in the classical form of testing, it's you're going to be more focused on the overall outcome that you want to happen. Like like as as a user, I want to see like you know my widget like get updated or something like that. Like it or you'll see some 
side effect in the screen or something like that. Yeah, if the side effect happens sort of outside of, yeah, I mean, I guess that's typically what a side effect means. It's sort of happening outside of, of, out of your particular thing under test. I'm personally a much bigger believer of classical TDD, well, classical TDD. And in general, I actually haven't really seen anyone go full-blown mock. I've, I've actually never really seen that. But in general, I, I do see a lot of mocks plaguing, I mean, obviously I use a strong word. I don't feel great about mocks when I don't think they're required, especially front end where um, you shallow mount your React object and every single sort of thing, you have a ton of mocks. Every time you're like clicking on a button and dispatching something in Redux, you're just mocking something. Mm-hmm, and yeah. So the whole kind of system is lost in your test. You're not saying, okay, when I click this button, a modal pops up. You're saying when I click this button, dispatch is called with open modal. Right. Right. And you just trust that dispatch yeah. is the thing that you think it is and that it's wired into re- something called Redux and something called Redux will change the state. And in the end, there'll be a real modal. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's an advantage there, which is that now when your code fails, you know it has to do with this particular model under test and not any of the dependencies, right? Because like, presumably you have test coverage over those other models or those other components that it's interacting with. Yep, that's true. But on the other hand, what can happen and what I believe happens much more frequently is you are refactoring and you change some meaning, but like things still work, right? Like maybe you're not dispatching show modal, but the system is still doing the correct thing. And so the mock fails because you're not like mocks typically sort of say, assert that the code that I wrote is the code that I wrote. Double entry bookkeeping. (laughs) (laughs) It's tautological. Classical. Mm -hmm. Invented in Venice in the, you know, Renaissance period. What? what? <laughs> Devil bookkeeping, fantastic invention. Uh, that's a great you. invention, but you know, for accounting and maybe uh, not for your code. <laughs> I mean, do you propose that people not use shallow and use mount or render when they do uh, React tests? I guess that's the question because, like, to my knowledge, shallow is just faster, yeah. right? To test significantly. Yeah, I actually I don't know the answer. I know that uh, one of our coworkers, Simon Chen, has mentioned in one of our Slack channels a way that he's done it which I assume uses mounting, but I, I haven't explored it. Where I do know, I think that it would be prohibitively slow if you mounted everything. Because I think you're right. I think it's like way, 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 way slower. Like it might even take like a matter of seconds for yeah. each like rend- for each test. And then like you don't want to have multiple asserts to a test when you mount, but like you may lead to do that, which may lead to bad testing practices and that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know, it's just... I often find myself using shallow, but I think you brought up a good point that I should be testing what that button is actually doing, not that I simulate click and something is happening. Like, And I have to depend on other things to ensure it's working. Yeah. Well, I mean, just speaking of, of React and Redux, like mounting is actually a little bit hard. You have to solve a thing or two because like you need to have like a provider around your... Mm-hmm. So, so you can't just mount. Yeah. It, it makes things a little bit harder, which I'm sure it's surmountable, but teams would need to go to... <laughs> pun, pun intended. Oh, oh nice. Mountable. <laughs> yeah, I did that on purpose. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, I actually thought of a um, kind of an analogy for how I see that type of testing versus writing tests that assert more meaning than just just what a mock does is mm. you know if you're if you're like thinking of language and you have a sentence like this sentence is false on one end your test just says literally this sentence is false and if you change any word the test breaks right mm-hmm. it's not a terribly useful test it's the back to the double accounting you're just saying i wrote literally what i wrote versus there's there's kind of multiple levels of meaning going on there obviously there's the sentence speaking about itself in a contradiction. And mm-hmm. there is just like this, this sentiment of these words together kind of mean this thing where if you were to change your sentence to like, this sentence is definitely false. The meaning is the same. And so you want your test to still pass. You still, you want, you want to be able to make changes to your code easily without everything failing because it's not written exactly as you wrote it mm. like having performing tdd in such a way where your code is guided by the test but not constricted by it yes and in general like i want what what i want more than anything is i want to be able to refactor willy-nilly have confidence and not break all the tests because that that will happen if you try and if you if you go to a react redux code base and you cha- make a lot of changes even if your app works still perfectly you're going to re- need to rewrite a lot of tests yeah if you're like moving like functionality from one component to another extracting components yep you're going to need to rewrite all your tests and i think that's kind of a shame like part of the promise of tests is easy refactoring right yeah yeah. I mean, what I find what I find up happening is that people get frustrated because they wrote tests, but then they have to change these components, and they're like, "Oh, I'll just write the least. I'll write a smoke test, and then we'll figure it out from there." And that causes problems all around. But I think like React kind of leads to ensuring that you write as confident tests as possible, knowing that they're going to probably break when you have to refactor the implementation. Besides time, as I mentioned before, where you know using shallow rendering is the optimal thing to do when you want to unit test, do you know any other times where like mocking is the ultimate way to go? I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good question, and I thought about that some, and I th- I think part of how that breaks down is what you're considering a unit. It's certainly, you know, a, a, a function is a very easy place to be like, this is a unit, React component, a class, all easy things to consider a unit. And how, how deep that code will go sort of factors into what makes sense as a unit. Right. Because I think there, there is a point where if you don't mock anything out, then you're basically dealing with an end-to-end test. And the combinatorial yeah yeah <laughs> like amount of things that can happen in that code flow have just like burst up to millions right and now now that's a problem and so, yeah you might your test might fail for completely unrelated reasons like in in your back to the the frustrating aspect that you're talking about earlier where if you are mocking too heavily like and you try to refactor you're going to break a bunch of things same thing that happened. Like if your, you know, your selectors are brittle or what have you, you could still run into the same problem with a a, a broader scope test. 
Yeah, I don't have a solid answer there, but I do believe, you know, it's, it's, I mean, part of it, like you can imagine back when people wrote classes more often that had private methods, which I guess actually just personally, I've been working in languages that don't have private, they would say, okay, you know, you don't test your private methods, partly because unless like you're using Ruby, you, you can't. And so you test your public interface and mm-hmm. a, a set of code behind there and, and that that piece of code does a thing. It's just sort of finding a good set of logical stuff that isn't too large because then then you get into just too many possibilities, but also isn't too small. I think if you're obsessively only testing the smaller things. The other thing I'll see happen a lot is people write all their unit tests and they're burnt out. They've just spent so much time writing tests and they're tired. And so they don't really write any integration-y tests, Mm. which I think is a shame because I think integration tests catch a lot of bugs. And that's like, you know, you talk about the testing period, but usually the top layers of the tests sort of suffer if people are always writing all the unit tests. Right. I I know that's something that we're thinking about right now in the project I'm on, where we want to explore the top of the pyramid a little bit more. But we're spending a lot of time writing a lot of unit tests. And it's a question of like, what what do we value? And like, how do we make that trade off? Like, what's what's the right mix? Is it a pyramid shape? Maybe. <laughs> I think it's, it's easier if you start at the top of the pyramid and you write one happy path end-to-end test and let that drive maybe a couple of integration tests, which drive a ton of unit tests. And if you start at the end-to-end level, then you know you're going to get there. And I think the the only thing that makes people resistant to that is that it leaves an open loop open for a while. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because that end-to-end test is going to be read until the feature is done. And I think that's a good thing. I think that you want a little bookmark that says, hey, you know, we got to come back to this. This is not done yet. And that shouldn't go green until the feature is actually done. But it is a little bit stressful to have a failing test. Right. And I guess like also taking the discipline to actually write the test in a meaningful way before it's actually the features completed or before you you know entirely what it's going to look like. That's sort of classical TDD though, right? Like anytime you're like, oh, okay, I haven't written this feature yet. So what is this test saying? Mm-hmm. Right. It yeah, does but take I'm a just, little extra level. That that's like something that is a little bit scary for people. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, that's true. Although I think it's, it's easier for end-to-end tests than it is for unit tests. Because with a unit test, you really have to think, what kind of an interface am I going to design for this? Whereas mm. for an end-to-end test, you probably have a mock, like some mock-up that a designer gave you. And you know, oh, there's going to be a button and it says submit. So I don't know. As a placeholder, I'll just say like, click the submit button. Mm-hmm. The book Goose, Growing off Object-Oriented Software Through Guided tests. by Tests. Yes, Guided by Tests. Mm. The goose is loose. The goose is loose, yeah. <laughs> they, they advocate that same approach where you write your end-to-end test first. And then I think even an integration test, which is also another part of the pyramid that often sort of gets forgotten. Right. Followed by the low level, like now I'm actually implementing code with unit tests. And that book was actually written by, I think, some of the people that pioneered mocks. So maybe maybe they have it right all along. Yeah, it feels like integration tests basically just get forgotten or they get confused with end-to-end tests and the two terms become synonymous. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the latter, as you mentioned. It is tricky. You know, if you write all those tests... 
lot of testing. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of testing. It's definitely going to spend more time than you're writing production code. Right. Yeah, for sure. And it's definitely like the way that you're testing is also different. So that could be a little exhausting as well. Right. Like it's a unit test. You're thinking about like the particular changes that may happen within the unit, but the end to end covers like everything. So like to start from the top of the pyramid, as you all mentioned, on your way down can be exhausting. Yeah. And it's tough when there are other people on your team who are shipping code with no tests and they get their tickets done way faster. Mm -hmm. They're the saviors, the rock stars. (laughs) (laughs) The cowboy ninjas. Cowboy ninja. Yeah. Space pirate. (laughs) (laughs) So do you, as you mentioned before, recommendation that covers the testing paradigm that we mentioned is Goose, as Jacob has called out. If you haven't read it, it's a pretty solid book. I would yep. recommend it myself. Growing object-oriented software guided by tests? Yeah. yeah. Why is it Goose? Goosey. I think it's, yeah. Goosed. Huh. The Goose. <laughs> I, don't, I just say every time I hear Goose, I got to say the Goose is loose. Yeah. <laughs> Any thoughts on spies over mocks? Hmm. Spies versus mocks. That's, uh, I'm trying to actually think think of what the distinction is because these days they blur together a lot of a lot of libraries okay i think i think the traditional difference is that spies don't stub out the behavior where mocks do so a spy like you can you can say how many times we were called but whatever the initial implementation is it still happens yeah it just passes through yeah hmm i guess i feel like if you're gonna do it do it you know, mock that puppy out. <laughs> you know, if you want to, if you want to be saying like, yeah, I, I think if you want to leave the initial implementation in there, then then maybe it's better to have your assertion around something that happened because of that method call, where you won't test everything, right? Because that method call could mean a hundred different things happen. Right. And I certainly, you don't want, because then then you've got these rigid tests where you change one thing and your whole test suite fails. Yeah. But maybe you pick one thing that that method does that it's sort of at its core what it's about. Like what is something in that, there's, there's an art there about picking what that is and asserting that that happened. So if you're going to do it, just do it. Go full mock. I think so, but but it is actually you know a lot. I think a lot of testing frameworks these days like they they use the words interchangeably. Mm. Yeah, like your mock will have the ability to spy. Yeah, or you know your spies stub out the behavior. Or I love a good spy. <laughs> you, love, you love a good spy. <laughs> now yeah. that I think about it, I love spies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the the title of the article that we were talking about before is mocks aren't stubs. So we're talking a lot about mocks and spies, but like, what is a stub? Man, what is a stub? That's actually, man, there's too much terminology. I think a stub <laughs> is actually when you like stub out the thing, which leaves the question, what is the mock? I think maybe a mock stubs and records behavior. There's there's too much differentiation, like tiny little differences that people don't really use in their everyday speak, but... What I certainly do know is that I just hate Steven Nunez. (laughs) (laughs) He's one of the worst programmers I've ever met. (laughs) I'll I'll be sure to relay that message to him, along with the stubs and the box and the spot. If you're listening, Steven, I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have a Martin Fowler official definition of, of the stub? I think we do. He's even got dummy in there. Yeah, oh, like Steven uh, Nunez. <laughs> <laughs> There's also fake. 
That's <laughs> my God. This is written about Stephen. <laughs> so stubs provide canned answers to calls made during the test, usually not responding at all to anything outside of what they're programmed for in the test. So your stub would expect to be called with five and respond with six. But if you called it with four, blow up. There you go. Definitions. We'll be sure to drop that link, I guess, in the show notes and let our listeners have at it with the spies and the stubs and the fakes and the dummies and the what have you. Thank you to Papa Marty for explaining all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you will enjoy reading this incredibly long blog post (laughs) as well. (laughs) Jacob, always a pleasure having you on. Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.